We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Amalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Sheer Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Amalia, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruins, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you. You guys may be seated. you join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together on this beautiful Christmas Sunday morning to worship you. Lord, during this busy holiday season with all the ever-changing distractions that come with it, we thank you for your never-changing word that guides us, encourages us, and strengthens us. Lord, some of us here this morning are weary are confused, are feeling a sense of hopelessness and loss. And I pray that you will speak to us today through your word, that you will transform us by your grace, and that you will renew us in hope. May the words of my mouth now and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. 
My name is John Kong. I am the RUF campus minister at UC Berkeley, and it is such a privilege to worship with you all this morning and to share God's word with you this Christmas Sunday. Um, if you are a first-time visitor, if you're from out of town or just visiting us for the first time in general, um, we're so glad you're here. It really does mean a lot that you've chosen to spend your Christmas Sunday morning worshiping with us. So thank you for being here. Um, if you have been here for the last few weeks, you know that our church went through, we finished a series titled, He Shall Be Called. And that's based, our Advent series was based on a famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, where Jesus is called different titles. Right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so as I was thinking about what to share with you guys in this Christmas Sunday morning, I thought it would be appropriate to look at the other famous prophecy about Jesus coming in Isaiah, which is in Isaiah chapter 7. Right, so you just heard it read to you, and you probably recognize the last verse that we just read, Isaiah 7 verse 14, where the prophecy is, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, many of you are very familiar, I assume, with that verse, very familiar with that prophecy. But my guess is most of you are probably not as familiar with the context surrounding that prophecy. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of someone quote something out of context or take a quote out of context before. Um, for example, many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the phrase, great minds think alike, right? And we say that to compliment another person and ourselves that we're intelligent, right? <laughs> But if you know the full quote, the full quote is, great minds think alike, but fools seldom differ. So if you get the full context of that quote, you're thinking, huh, maybe if someone thinks like me, that doesn't mean I'm intelligent. That just means I'm like anybody else. Or you've probably heard of the phrase, the world is my oyster. The world is your oyster, right? And we use that to be optimistic about what life has to offer. But that quote is actually from Shakespeare, and in his play, when the character is saying that quote, it's actually not very optimistic. It's actually a little bit bleak. The character is actually saying that in order for him to attain fortune, in order for him to attain the world, he has to use violence and force to do that. My point in, in bringing up these, these quotes is that these are famous secular quotes that are taken out of context a lot of times. And the thing that we do as Christians a lot is we often take scripture out of context. And I'm sure you guys, you guys have plenty of examples that come to your mind that you have heard either misquoted or just taken out of context. And I think that Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is probably one of the most most often quoted out of, out of context scripture passages. Um, you guys are probably familiar with it because you maybe have seen it printed on a Christmas card. Maybe you've seen it decorated at someone's house as like a cross stitch. But I, I would bet good money that you have never seen the surrounding verses of verse 14 decorated or printed on a Christmas card. Right? Because we often think of this prophecy as like a beautiful foretelling of cute baby Jesus coming to earth. But that is not what that is. Right? I, I hope to show in a little bit that this prophecy is a huge encouragement 
and a huge comfort for us. But the context surrounding this prophecy is anything but rosy and merry and bright. But instead, the circumstances surrounding this prophecy are full of fear, full of uncertainty, and full of desperation. Right, the prophecy of good news that Isaiah brings here in chapter 7 is given amidst a ton of bad news that the world is in at that time. And maybe that's how some of you are feeling this morning. Right? Maybe you feel like you are surrounded by distressing news and difficult circumstances. This is not maybe the most wonderful time of the year for you, but instead you feel loss. You have, a, you have an acute sense of your pain, of the sufferings that you have had to endure, and the trials that you still have to face. Christmas in our world is often described with decorated Christmas trees and beautiful Christmas presents that some of you ripped open this morning. And yet you feel alone. You feel lost. And maybe you're here today looking for answers and looking for a semblance of hope. Well, friends, if that's how you feel, you are in the right place. I'm glad you're here because how the world describes Christmas is not what Christmas is about. If you were here last night at our Christmas Eve service, you heard Pastor Brent tell us what Christmas is truly about, and I want to echo that this morning. Right, what Christmas is truly about, at its core, Christmas is good news given in a bad news world. Right, Christmas is good news given in a bad news world, and our text today exemplifies that truth. And what I hope this morning is to show through this prophecy just two aspects of why Christmas is good news to us. And we're going to look at this through two headings. First is a miraculous conception, and second is a multifaceted calling. Right? Miraculous conception and multifaceted calling. So first, the miraculous conception. Um, in verse 14, Isaiah starts with saying, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And there are two parts to this sign. Right? The first part of the sign is a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, if you're familiar with Christianity, you know that the virgin birth of Jesus is a central tenet to our faith. We recite this in the Apostles' Creed. This doctrine has been talked about and written numerous times throughout church history. And especially during Christmas time, we often remind ourselves of the image of the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus. And the question I want to ask this morning is why? Why is it significant that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin? Have you ever wondered that before? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is it important for you and for me that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin and rather than being born in the normal way that everyone else is? You might have a lot of different answers to that question, but this morning I want to just highlight one aspect, one reason, one reason why that is good news for us. Right, the virgin conception and birth highlights the truth that your salvation 
And my salvation comes by divine initiative. Right? Salvation is a work of God that he initiates for us. It is not something that you and I can achieve ourselves. Right? Salvation doesn't happen because of our abilities. None of us here can cause a virgin to conceive. Only God can. And we see that truth. The God is the one who initiates salvation to his people here in Isaiah 7. Right? The background of Isaiah 7, it talks about a man named Ahaz. He is the king of Judah, and he finds himself in a dire predicament here in chapter 7. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Judah is under attack by two countries, Israel and Aram. Or if you're reading a different translation, Israel and Syria. The people of Judah and King Ahaz of Judah are so afraid that verse 2 describes them as trees shaking in the wind. Ahaz, King Ahaz, he's a descendant of David. He is of the line of David. And so what is being threatened here is not just Judah about to be captured, but it's the threat of the line of David being extinguished. Right? In verse 6 of our passage, Isaiah tells us what Aram and Israel's ultimate plan is. It's not only to invade Judah, but it's to replace Ahaz as king with their own candidate. All right, so Ahaz and Judah are under considerable duress, and that is the circumstance in which God comes to Ahaz and brings him good news. Right, you see God's initiative all over this passage. Verse 3, God is the one who brings Isaiah to Ahaz. In verse 10, God tells Ahaz to request a sign from him, something that God almost never does. And then in verse 14, after Ahaz has refused to ask God for a sign, God gives him one anyway. God is relentlessly pursuing Ahaz. He is taking the initiative to encourage him, to reassure him that he will save Judah and deliver his people. Now you might think to yourself, okay, John, Ahaz is the king of Judah, right? He is of the line of David. Of course God is going to save him. Of course God is going to pursue him. But what about me? That's, that's not who I am. How do I know that God is going to relentlessly pursue me after all the things I have done in this life. Well, there's one more aspect about King Ahaz we haven't brought up yet, and it's important for us to understand in this passage, but it's hard for us to tell from our text today. King Ahaz, especially if you read, you know, we read verse 12, his response to God when God tells him to ask for a sign, we might even think that Ahaz is actually a very good and pious king, not wanting to put God to the test. But that could not be further from the truth. The background of King Ahaz, you'll find actually in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And there we see that King Ahaz was actually a very wicked king. King Ahaz did not walk in the ways of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the pagan nations around him. 
He built so many altars to false gods in Judah that he led his people astray, and he was so wicked. He was so wicked that he burned his own children in the fire as a sacrifice to those gods. Ahaz is as wicked a king as can be. And now, when he's faced with a potential disaster of being invaded by two other countries, he, does, he still does not look to God for help. He looks to everything else but God. 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 tell us that King Ahaz goes to find help from Assyria. Assyria, who is the biggest, baddest bully on the block at that time. Assyria is a very powerful country, but it is a very evil and wicked country. And Ahaz thinks that he is going to find more safety in that country than in God. That is who Ahaz is. And yet we see that God still pursues him. Look at verse 11. When God asks Ahaz to request a sign from him, God describes himself to Ahab as your God. Ahab doesn't even believe in God. He is worshiping other pagan idols and God is addressing Ahaz saying, I am your God. And in verse 12, again, when we initially might think that Ahaz is being pious and saying, no, I don't want to test God. I don't want to, I don't want to ask for a sign. It's not pious. God is telling Ahaz to do something. God is telling Ahaz to do something, and Ahaz is refusing in disobedience. Ahaz says he doesn't want to put the Lord to the test, but Isaiah's response to Ahaz in verse 13 is basically Isaiah saying, you say you don't want to put the Lord to the test, but Ahaz, you have been testing the Lord your entire life. And now when God wants to encourage you, when God wants to give you a sign to promise you peace and protection, you're going to refuse it? This is how much God loves his people, even when they are disobedient. Verse 14 says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God still pursues his people. He initiates their salvation. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first part of the sign that God gives as an assurance that he will deliver his people is a sign of a baby being born of a virgin. Because lest anyone think that their salvation is because of their own accomplishments, God is saying no. The sign of your salvation is something that you could never do is something that only I can do and is something that I am willing to do for you. I mentioned earlier that I am the uh, university campus minister at UC Berkeley, and so one of a big part of my job is to reach college students. And I love working with college students. We've got some in the room. It's good to see you guys here on Christmas. Um, but one of the most difficult parts of the job and one of the most humbling parts of the job is when I text a student and I ask them, hey, can I take you off for coffee? Can I take, out, can I take you off for lunch? Can I care for you? And I get no response. <laughs> when all I want to do is love them, when all I want to do is care for them, when all I want to do is feed them, <laughs> and they ghost me again 
and again and again. It's so frustrating and it can be so demoralizing. Which obviously I'm not talking about you guys who are here. You guys are awesome. <laughs> but if you guys have any tips on how to win the adoration of 18 to 22 year olds, please let me know and make my job a lot easier next semester. But as I was reflecting, I was, I've been reflecting on how the last semester has gone the last couple of days, and as I was reflecting on that, and, and as I was reflecting on this passage, I realized that I treat God the same way. God is relentlessly pursuing me, and when I am distraught and when I am downcast, God wants to encourage me. He wants to give me hope, and time and time again, I ignore God. I reject God. I look to everything else to find comfort and security instead of God himself. And yet he is still so faithful to me. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news of Christmas. Amidst all the trials and tribulations that you may be facing, and no matter how many times you have ignored God or rejected him in your life, God is still relentlessly pursuing you. I remember that truth, that God is the one who takes initiative to save you. He is your God. He is the only one who can save you, and he has when he ultimately sent his son Jesus to be conceived and born of a Virgin Mary over 2,000 years ago on Christmas. But that is not all the good news there is. There is more. Right? That is only the first part of the sign. The second part of the sign is the name Jesus will be called, which is Emmanuel. And that leads me to my second point, a multifaceted calling. Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us, and Jesus accomplishes that when he comes to earth. Right? He came to be with us. God came to be with us, and that is part of the good news of Christmas. But before we get into why that is good news, I want us to, again, remember the context of this prophecy. Right? We've already talked about how evil Ahaz was as a king. He did not follow the Lord. He looked to everything else besides God. And even when God asked him for a sign, he still refuses. So when Isaiah tells him, when Isaiah tells Ahaz that God himself will still give you a sign, and part of that sign is Emmanuel, God with us, that prophecy for Ahaz is actually also one of judgment. All right, think about this. If you've committed a crime and someone tells you, hey, the police is coming to be with you, that's, that's bad news. That's not good news for you, right? Um, a lot of people here in the Bay Area, we work in the tech industry. And so if, you've been, if you work in the tech industry, if you follow the news, you know that the last couple of months have been rough and there's been a lot of layoffs. And if you happen to work for, let's say, Elon Musk's company, and you heard that Elon Musk was coming to the office today and there were rumors of layoffs, you might be scared for your job. Having the boss come to town is not always good news. Growing up, the most terrifying thing for me when I did something wrong was when my mom uttered the words, just wait until dad gets home. <laughs> right? That was the worst news because just wait until dad gets home means dad being with me means punishment was coming. Right? And the same is true here. 
Ahaz should have been a little nervous, maybe really nervous, hearing this part of the prophecy that God will be with him. Because even though Ahaz doesn't believe in God, he should know his history and he knows the history of his country and that he should know a holy God being with sinful people is bad news. If you're not a believer here today, when you hear someone tell you God will be with you, that is not necessarily the most comforting thing for your ears, is it? We want to live our lives like how we want to live our lives. We don't want anybody else telling us how we are to live, and we definitely don't need anybody else coming to judge us and punish us for that. That's why I've called part of this sign um, that Isaiah gives in his prophecy a multifaceted calling. Because this calling of Jesus, his name being Emmanuel, God with us, is a warning for those who don't believe in Jesus. Now, if you are sitting here this morning and you are not a Christian, and you are not convinced yet of the claims of Christianity, and you are thinking to yourselves, my goodness, I cannot believe I wasted my Christmas Sunday morning listening to this pastor talk about judgment, I want to say, one, thank you for coming. (laughs) But second, just, just bear with me for a minute longer. God being with us is only bad news if judgment for our sin is the end of the story. But the good news of Christmas, the good news about Jesus being Emmanuel, is that Christ came in order to atone for our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, which is one of the most famous birth narratives of Jesus, Matthew actually quotes Isaiah 7. He quotes Isaiah 7, this prophecy about Jesus being born, about him being called Emmanuel. But Matthew also tells us why God with us is good news for us. When Matthew says that Jesus' birth fulfilled the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah in verse 21, he says this son that the Virgin Mary bears will save his people from their sins. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus has come, that he has come to live the perfect life that you and I should have lived, and he has come to die the death that you and I should have died because of our sins, and on the third day, he rose from the dead, all for you, all so that God being with us would no longer be bad news, but would be good news. I mentioned earlier that the words wait until dad gets home was terrifying for me growing up. And I remember one time, I was young, and I was naughty, and I was running around the house, and I broke my mom's favorite vase. It shattered into like a thousand pieces, and my mom was furious. She was furious, and she said, John, just you wait until dad gets home. And I was terrified. I was trembling. I was bracing for whatever punishment was about to happen. And so my dad comes home, walks in the door, sees me, sees the floor with the thousand shattered pieces of the vase, and he goes and grabs the broomstick. And I'm thinking to myself, it's coming, it's coming. But instead, dad starts to sweep the floor. He starts to sweep up the thousand shattered pieces of the vase, and he cleans up. He cleans up my entire mess. And he comes to me and he says, son, be more careful next time. Don't do that again. 
And then he goes and finds mom and he bears the brunt of her wrath. I love my mom. We have a great relationship. But man, she was angry that day. She loved that vase. And my dad was willing to face her frustration in order to spare me. From that time on, the words, wait until dad comes home, no longer were words of terror to me, but were words of hope and encouragement and comfort. And the same is true of Jesus being Emmanuel. He came to do what you and I could not do. He came to restore our relationship with God so that now God with us is the most beautiful promise you and I could ever ask for. Our text in Isaiah 7, Judah is in dire straits and the way God encourages Judah is by giving them a sign that he will be with them. Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm in all of scripture. David writes there in verse four, even though I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. God with us. We, because he is with us, we can face life's valleys of darkness, of difficulty, and of even death. God with us is why we can face the bad news of the world around us. Why Christmas is such good news. And so brothers and sisters, no matter what circumstances circumstances you find yourself this Christmas morning, no matter how far you feel removed from God, or no matter how tired and weary you are because the hand life has dealt you, remember this good news. Remember the good news of Christmas, that God is pursuing you, that he loves you, and that he is with you. And that is what this meal points to, right? This meal points to what Jesus has done when he came into this world and the promise of what he has accomplished for us, that he is with us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. And after dinner, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you for the remission of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christmas for pursuing us to the point of sending your son, Jesus, to save us from our sins so that you could be with us and so that that would be good news for us. We ask now for your Holy Spirit to be with us as we eat this bread and drink the wine, to be comforted by your truths and to strengthen us in our faith. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.